Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning, everybody. Snowmageddon 2017 has not stopped us this week. We all made it. We're back at it. And I'm really grateful, really thankful that that's the case. We had to put on hold uh, from last week uh, taking communion and uh, hearing ministry partnership videos. And um, we were able to celebrate child dedications as well. These are just signs of God at work among us. Uh, We want to remember the gospel, remember what Jesus has done for us and what he does uh, through us and um, gathering us as the church and seeing new ministry partners come along. That's exceptional to watch. And families that not only want to have kids, not only want to raise kids, but want that to um, raise them to follow Jesus and to know Jesus. And these are just evidences, just a few of the evidences of how God is at work among us. And we praise him for that. 18% of Canadians strongly agree the Bible is the word of God. There was a study done in 2013 about um, Bible engagement in Canada. 18% of Canadians strongly agree the Bible is the Word of God. That doesn't seem shocking to me. Um, It seems like a fair assessment as I kind of gauge the culture at large. But it is down from 35% in 1996. Meaning that if that trend continues, there will be no people in less than 20 years, who strongly agree the Bible is the word of God. It is a downward trend at a rapid rate. See, Canadians who strongly agree that the Bible is the word of God, it shouldn't surprise us, but they're 10 times as likely to read the Bible frequently, read it multiple times a week, and six times more likely to attend church services weekly as those who just moderately agree. So between those who moderately agree that the Bible is the word of God and those who strongly agree... Those who strongly agree, not moderately agree that it's the word of God, 10 times more likely to read the Bible multiple times a week, six times more likely to do something like this, come to a church gathering on a Sunday. So it matters. 69% of Canadians and half of Christians, those who ticked the Christian box in the survey, 69% of Canadians and half of Christians agree that the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions. So when we hear of divorces... And they took the box of irreconcilable differences. What they are meaning is there are problems in our marriage that we cannot overcome. Therefore, we're getting divorced. Well, um, half of Christians and 69% of Canadians say that the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions. Now, that's going to have massive ramifications, just as a marriage that seems to have irreconcilable differences would. 2% of those who believe the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions read it frequently. And that shouldn't surprise us. If you think that it has these massive errors in it, what's going to lead you to read it? So only 2% of those who think it has these irreconcilable contradictions do. Very few Canadians with that belief attend religious services weekly. Only 8% of this half of Christians and 69% of Canadians. By contrast, Canadians who disagree that the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions or believe that it doesn't have them are three times as likely to attend services weekly and nine times as likely to read the Bible frequently. 
Lastly, 64% of Canadians and nearly 60% of Christians agree that scripture, the scriptures of all major religions teach essentially the same thing. Meaning that those who do, who believe that the, all scriptures of all major religions essentially teach the same thing, are likely to disregard the teachings of a specific text and just find a common ethic through them. You know what? Justice matters. Being a good neighbor matters. We should love. That's kind of it. Speaking into this culture that exists, R.C. Sproul wrote, let's assume the Bible is only basically reliable, which is what overwhelmingly Canadians believe. Let's assume the Bible is only basically reliable, not inspired, but simply a decent historical record from history. Let's further assume we go through it with a fine-tooth comb and get rid of all the passages that we think are not historical and just keep the ones that are undisputed among the critics. After all that, in that little piece of scripture that would be left, we would find that Jesus of Nazareth taught that the Bible is more than generally reliable. Now, if there's enough evidence to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a prophet, then what do we do with his prophetic teaching about Scripture? He tells us that Scripture is much more than basically reliable. It cannot be broken. So whittle down the Bible, chop out all the parts that critics say, well, that's not from God, that's not really true, that's not historical, cut all of those out, and you're left with a guy named Jesus that most would say he's some kind of a prophet, and his prophetic words were this, the Bible is unbreakable. So this morning, I have a one major question I want us to answer. I want us to at least work on a bit, because it takes a lot to study this kind of thing. But here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? Like, that's the core question we have when we come across subject matter. Like, if the Bible is believable or if it has contradictions in it, the essential question for the Christian is, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Because to be a Christian, after all, is to be a little Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be one who learns under Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is one that chases down Jesus, walks behind him, follows him wherever he goes, and learns what he teaches, believes what he believes. So what we want to do as Christians is understand what Jesus believed about the Bible, and we're safe there. If you're not a Christian, and if you're exploring faith this morning, it's still a really helpful question. What do Christians actually believe about the Bible anyways? Like, what do they think about it? And, and to be honest, what we believe as Christians about the Bible is what Jesus believed about the Bible, and he was clear in many places. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John 10? We're concluding this part of the chapter. A couple weeks back when we were uh, looking at the earlier parts of chapter 10, we saw that Jesus was declaring that he's the good shepherd, and he concluded that nobody can snatch his sheep from his grasp, from his hand, and that his Father, God the Father, that nobody can snatch his sheep from his hand, and then he declares, because I and the Father are one. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's called the Shema, and it begins this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord's your God, the Lord is one one. And Jesus is communicating with these people and essentially working his way into that oneness of God. I and the Father are one, he says. And so now we pick it up. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus said something they don't like again, and they're ready to stone him again. 
Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. I've worked miracles. I've done incredible things before your eyes. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. First thing I want us to look at this morning, it's in your outline. Jesus and his audience believed that Scripture cannot be broken. Before we unpack that, let me just give you a little bit of context about what's going on. They want to stone Jesus, not for the miracles he worked, but for proclaiming himself to be God. And, and, and they made it really clear because Jesus asked them to get specific. What are you stoning me for? You make yourself out to be God. You call yourself the son of God. You're blaspheming. We're going to stone you. And then what Jesus does in response is he uses Psalm 82, a rather obscure psalm, really. And he uses it where there is a, where there is a word there that refers to um, rulers as gods. And he's saying if they are gods and they're unjust and they do wrong, but they're gods among the people, they are able to judge and they are able to rule. They are gods among the people. If they're called gods, how with the works that I have shown you and the words that I have said to you, am I not worthy to be called God? Now, Psalm 82 is, is, is definitely a pretty obscure psalm. I mean, we heard from Psalm 1 this morning. We've heard and we're familiar with Psalm 23 about God's goodness as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. All the big U2 fans know Psalm 40 from memory, thanks to them. David's Psalm of Repentance in chapter 51 is essential psalm reading. Psalm 119 about the word as a lamp to our feet is a staple. But Psalm 82? That's a rather obscure psalm. I go to the gym just enough for it not to have a positive effect on my life. Um, <laughs> this is just the worst. Because you always hate it. it. never shows any results. Uh, and the most humbling part for me as a guy at the gym is when you stand where the, all the weights are and it's just a wall of mirrors. So it, it's just the perfect way to look and see the low amount of weight that you are lifting while you're also able to glance at the large amount of weight that the guy next to you is lifting. And his tank top is like so like barely there that it's just also just like, 
And it's just a, a horrible experience because you just look super, super strong and, and you feel really weak and you have barely any weight in your hands. And you go and by the bench press and it's the same thing really is you put on the, as much weight as you can lift, at least I do, where I don't need a spotter because it's too embarrassing to have a spotter for the amount of weight that's on the bar. So you're like, I don't want this to fall on my neck, but I also don't want to ask a guy to like spot me for 90 pounds. So it's like, ah. And then you look over and the guy has like on one side of the barbell, like my weight. So Jesus is using Psalm 82 to say, there's sinners who were called gods because they ruled over people. I reveal in word and deed that I'm God. And you want to stone me for the usage of the word? You can't stone me for the usage of the word. Scripture cannot be broken, and it refers to people as God. So if you want to stone me for being a God, you're breaking Scripture. If you're saying I'm wrong, then you're saying the Bible is wrong. But the Bible is unbreakable. It's the word of God. See, the unbreakability of the Scriptures is foundational, not only for Jesus, but also for the crowd he's speaking to. They don't press him on this point. They share it with him. Jesus didn't have to convince his audience that Scripture cannot be broken here or anywhere else, anytime. It was common ground that they shared that the Scriptures cannot be broken. This word broken has the sense of breaking, nullifying, or invalidating. So what Jesus is saying when the Scriptures cannot be broken is he's saying that Scripture can't be falsified. Scripture can't be invalidated or nullified. Its promises and warnings can't fall short of fulfillment. It is completely true. His hearers agree with his statement. Scripture cannot be broken. Do you? What do you do with difficulties you come across in the Bible? Do you conclude that the Scriptures cannot be broken? Or maybe you, you go a different route. Maybe you start to conclude, this, this, is, a, this is a problematic text. Maybe this didn't really happen. Maybe God didn't really do this. Maybe God didn't really say that. The Bible's broken. But if Scripture can't be broken, as Jesus says, perhaps it's not the Bible that's broken, but us. Our interpretations, our assumptions of it and of our world. Maybe it's not the written word of God that needs challenging so much as, so much as our trust in the Bible that does. Could it be that we are the ones who are broken and not the Bible? I mean, it seems obvious when I make... I say the statement, could it be that we're the ones who are broken and not the Bible? But the way many of us live is we read something problematic in Scripture and go, ah, there's some guys who would say that this isn't historic, so I'm just going to go with them. This part's not really Bible. And we jump there fast. Can we just for a moment stop and say, maybe we're the ones who are broken and not the Bible? Can we work that through longer than questioning a text instantly as if there is no validity to it? Tim Keller's latest book is called Making Sense of God, and it's an invitation to the skeptical. And he talks about a man who became his friend, but this man just started, he met him through this man attending his church, and he had really what, what Tim narrowed down to five major doubts that kept him from Christianity. The, and, and one of them was, one of the things that triggered his doubts was finding an unanswerable contradiction or error in the Scripture. 
In other words, he just had this assumption that the Bible had problems in it that could not be sorted out. And so therefore, faith in Jesus wasn't plausible. Believing in the Bible wasn't plausible. But Tim writes this, this doubt, my friend said, was based on a belief that all religious believers had a naive, uncritical trust in the Bible. Since coming to your church, the man said, I realize there have been a thousand PhD dissertations written on every single verse, and for every contention that one verse contradicts another or is an error, there are ten cogent counterpoints. Tim summarizes, he rightly lost his faith that he could ever find a difficulty in the Bible that was unanswerable. See, he had a faith going into this. His faith was that the Bible had irreconcilable contradictions. But as he began to study and as he began to learn, he realized that he had a misplaced faith. He was putting faith in a contradictory Bible. But what he realized that at every turn where he thought there was a contradiction, there were 10 PhD cogent like, statements that were, oh, that's actually plausible. Actually, that's helpful. Oh, that actually answers that one. Over and over and over again. Maybe you and I aren't the ones, are the ones who are broken, not the Bible. Secondly, Jesus taught that every word, iota, and dot in the Bible possesses authority. See, not only is Jesus making the case that Scripture can't be broken from an obscure psalm, he's making the case that Scripture can't be broken from one word in an obscure psalm, God's. He's building the case that Scripture, all of it, cannot be broken from one word. And it's not from the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. It's not from the prophet Isaiah. It's from a psalm crying out to God for justice. And Jesus is hanging on that one word for the unbreakability of the Bible. But he even takes it further than that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to or flip to Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The same word used in John 10 for broken is translated relaxes here. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Jesus is saying don't set aside or weaken even the smallest of God's commands. And he goes beyond even just saying down to the word. He says down to the iota and dot. Not yoda, iota. What is that? An iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, very similar to a lowercase i in ours. Smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, down to the iota. Scripture is unbreakable. Then he goes further, down to the dot. This dot he's referring to is the tiny graphical hooks or markings that distinguish similar Hebrew letters. Next time you see Hebrew script, just look for the little dots for the little hooks, the little markings, and that significantly change the meaning of words. Jesus taught that every word, every letter, every dot in the Bible is authoritative, has authority. 
Matthew 23, 23, it's a list of seven woes that Jesus gives religious people. And this is one of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What do you expect Jesus to say next? Stop it. Stop just tithing mint cumin and dill. Don't worry about the spices. Don't worry about those things. Worry about the big things. Just get the big things right. Mercy, justice, faithfulness. Just do those. Stop doing these little things. Do you think that's what he says? No, he goes on to say, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These in addition to, yes, continue to tithe because you're supposed to. I'm not, neg- but you've been neglecting these other pieces. Add them in as well. You should be about justice and faithfulness. You should be about the things that I'm about. You shouldn't just keep the parts of the law you want to keep, but you should keep it all. Jesus says, add those on too. Because every word, iota, and dot in the Bible are true, trustworthy, and possess authority. We are meant to approach the Bible like Jesus and not take some parts and leave others, but believe that every word is authoritative. 2 Timothy 3 says, all Scripture is God-breathed. And sometimes we're like, man, just be like Jesus. Why are you worried about those commandments over there? You're not doing this thing over here. Just do these things. Jesus is just about loving your neighbor. That's it. Just love people well. Be, Be more like Jesus. But we've totally misinterpreted the text because what Jesus is declaring, this too This is well, all of it, because every word, letter, and dot is truth. We're in a phase at our house where we're dinner time, trying to get our boys to eat everything on the plate. Um, And so, you know, it's helpful if they eat everything on the plate and then then they can have dessert. And today's Sunday. So on Sundays at Nashant's house, we have Sundays. We have Sundays on Sunday. So it's a big night for the boys because we just put a bunch of junk food on top of their ice cream, essentially. But it's not going to happen until they've eaten everything on their plate. And it's such a pain in the butt. It's so hard. It's so frustrating. Ah, I, I just want to be like, you like the potatoes? You know, just eat the potatoes. Don't worry about the veggies. Don't worry about the meat. Like, just, just eat what you like. Eat what you like. And then we'll have dessert. Have more of what you like. But what we're doing is we're trying to teach them to eat everything on the plate because you need it all. These young boys without their veggies are going to be like me at the gym. It's just going to be problematic. (laughs) It's not going to go well for them. It's going to be embarrassing. Eat your veggies. Eat the meat. Eat it all. But we're tempted to be like children at the dinner table. I just like this part. Jesus doesn't want us to have the other parts. He just wants me to have the parts I love. And then I get the candies after, right? Like when I was a kid, I hated asparagus. I hated Brussels sprouts. I hated all those things. Now I moderately like them, right? Especially with like, a ton, like beautiful things like garlic and make them delicious. And I want to live longer. So I'm motivated to eat those dark green veggies, right? And I've come to love and appreciate them. And that's the way God wants us to see the whole word of God. It's the dinner plate. Yes, maybe we're getting some of the parts and we love them and we like them and naturally they're delicious to us. But there's a whole plateful and we need to keep coming to it, keep adding. Yes, these two you should keep 
We should be like Jesus when it comes to the Scriptures and not let a word, a letter, or a dot pass by the wayside. Kevin DeYoung summarizes it this way. Jesus sees himself as an expositor of Scripture, but never a corrector of Scripture. He never comes along and says something about the Old Testament. That was wrong. This is right. He's only coming along and correcting misinterpretation, misapplication of the text. He's never correcting Scripture itself. He's an expositor of it, not a corrector of it. He fulfills it, but never falsifies it. He turns away wrong interpretations of Scripture, but insists that there is nothing wrong with Scripture, down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's. So central, in a day when 50% of those who tick the Christian box in Canada in a survey believe that there are irreconcilable contradictions in the Bible, may we be those who trust in its authority because Jesus did. New Testament scholar Wayne Grudem said, I've spent 30 years studying the problem text, the most difficult text, the ones that people would put in the box of irreconcilable contradictions. I've studied them all, and I've never once found a verse where I haven't found a satisfying response. Has it taken work? Has it taken digging? Has it taken prayer? Has it taken conversation, dialogue, giving time? Yes. But sometimes we are so quick to think, well, that's a problem text. must not be true. New Testament scholar who knows both languages All the languages of the scriptures is satisfied at every turn of the problem text. Let's do a quick definition here. We're going to define a theological word this morning, and then we're going to kind of quickly do the back half of this message. I want to define for you the inerrancy of scripture. What are we talking about when we talk about the inerrancy of scripture? There are councils that exist on the inerrancy of scripture that is totally trustworthy. What do they mean? What is the inerrancy of scripture that we should be clinging to, holding to? Well, the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts, the autographs, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. In other words, the Bible always tells the truth. It doesn't give us complete truths on everything that we would like to know, but wherever the Bible speaks, it's true. B.B. Warfield summarized inerrancy this way. Inerrancy simply comes down to the formula, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Inerrancy means the word of God always stands over us and we never stand over the word of God. There's a posture to inerrancy. We always stand under the word of God. Here's a couple ways that this rolls itself out, why inerrancy is important. If we deny inerrancy, we must ask if we can trust anything God said. Really, truly. It may seem like a stretch, but it's absolutely true. If we deny inerrancy, we must ask if we can trust anything God has said. Because initially, we'll begin to disobey the passages of Scripture we least like to obey. And distrust the passages we least like to trust. And this process will only increase to the detriment of our faith and the breaking of the Bible. How can we know which parts we can trust if there are some parts that are untrustworthy? Secondly, if we deny inerrancy, we make ourselves the standard of truth over the Bible. We make ourselves the standard of truth over the Bible. So by pronouncing some passages of Scripture to be in error, we put ourselves in the position to determine truth. Not the Bible, but us. Therefore, making ourselves a higher standard of truth than God's Word. Reading the Bible and saying, well, that part's not true. That's not historically accurate. Oh, we can't believe that anymore. That's pre-enlightenment, on and on and on. We stand in this posture of saying, we are able to see all that is true and all that is not true in the Bible. And what have we done? We've placed ourselves above Scripture. 
rather than ourselves under it. Let me conclude this morning back at Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament in that it all points to him. Jesus fulfills it by showing up as the word made flesh and dwelling among humanity. John 5, 39 says, You search the scriptures, and it is they that bear witness about me. Luke 24, 27, Jesus with his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He showed them Jesus. He showed them gospel in everything. In the, this is how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. The prophets spoke of his coming in sacrificial atonement. They pictured it and saw it on the horizon. The law, where the law spoke, Jesus came in and was the only one who obeyed it perfectly. The sacrificial system that we see, that if you do a Bible reading plan, you spend a lot of time on the unpacking of the sacrificial system in Israel. But it was all looking forward to his great sacrifice of himself. Many events in the history of Israel Israel foreshadowed his life as God's true son. In the wisdom literature, it set forth a pattern of life that he himself exemplified. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament in that it all points to him. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't replace the Old Testament, but but fulfills it as Jesus' life and ministry, interpretation, death, and resurrection complete and clarify God's intent and meaning in the entire Bible. Never broken or relaxed. Only understood more fully in light of his coming. See, 60% of Christians agree that the scriptures of all major religions teach essentially the same things. But it's in these scriptures and believing in them, that we come across the gospel which is completely unique, which says, which acknowledges that you and I can't save ourselves. We're incapable of it. We cannot merit salvation on our own. We need Jesus. And so the message contained in this Bible, in this word, is the good news of Jesus Christ that he saves wretches like you and me, that he came to rescue us, that when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin, When he died, you got life. When he bore your sin, you went free. So that by him obeying the law perfectly and completing the sacrificial system and fulfilling the prophets, what they said of him in all of that happening in Jesus Christ, when God looks upon us who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, Rescuer, Master, when we look at Jesus that way, accept him that way, God looks down at us and sees his spotless record, not our rags not our filthy garments. He sees the purity of Christ. See, we believe the Bible because, firstly, Jesus did. Secondly, because the Scriptures reveal Jesus and the good news of the gospel. That is great news. We trust it. We believe it. See, at Central, here's my goal as I get up to preach every week is I, tell, I give you little illustrations, little stories sometimes, and sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. Just ch- checking if you're awake once in a while by saying something that hopefully makes you laugh. It's pulsing things. But you know what I want to do when I leave the stage every Sunday? Is I want you left with God's word. 
I hope the stories, the illustrations just help it along a little bit. I hope that they help keep them in memory. But I want God's truths to stay with your hearts, and that's the point. Because we believe it. We trust it. And Central, I have great compassion where, where, where you're struggling to believe God's word. And my prayer for you would to be like the father in Mark chapter 9 who brings his son for healing. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. With a posture of looking to Jesus in faith and saying, now help me work out these questions, these challenges, these things that feel like roadblocks to me in your word. We have a lot of time for that. I would love to talk to you more about those things that may be hindering you.